Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Well, it's a member drive special edition of the program today, and my special guest for the hour is Ken Sanders from Ken Sanders Rare Books in Salt Lake City. We're going to uh, talk about uh, current events and also uh, reach back briefly into the Access Utah archives uh, for some of our favorite uh, episodes, or at least excerpts from those. We're going to hear from uh, the writer David Gessner talking about Henry David Thoreau. David Gessner appeared at uh, an event uh, at Ken Sanders Rare Books, I believe, earlier on this year. We'll also feature a sound clip uh, from 2014 from the film Wrenched about Edward Abbey. Ken Sanders appeared in that uh, that film and on our program. He was a friend of Ed Abbey. And uh, we'll invite you to pledge your support to uh, UPR to ensure that Access Utah continues strong uh, throughout this hour. Uh, Ken Sanders, uh, thanks for joining us again. Good morning, Tom. Thank you so much for having me. I want to start with uh, Ken Sanders Rare Books. Um, I know the pandemic has wreaked havoc on small businesses, booksellers, um, and yeah, the ups and downs of Ken Sanders Rare Books. How, how are you doing right now? I, you know, you know when when we say questions like that, Tom, we you know we're just being polite, you know. But since the pandemic, it's like my answer to everyone is, "How the heck do you tell anymore? What's the criteria?" that we use now to tell how we are. I don't know anymore. I never got the COVID. I've been vaccinated since March, but I feel like my mind is gone, my memory is gone, and everything that I know is gone. And it's like, so what's the criteria for us knowing how we are now? Uh, plus, the, the pandemic just seems to, seems to continue on and on. It's, uh, it can be a little, little depressing. I, as far as I'm concerned, Webster's and all the others need to take the word normal out of our dictionaries online, yeah. in print, because in order for a word to be in the dictionary, it has to have a meaning, Tom. Yeah. Normal doesn't have a meaning anymore. Get it out. Don't yeah, that's... quit using it. We're not getting back to normal. There's no such thing as normal. What the future holds... We don't know, but this pandemic is going to be with us forever. Are there are there any? Is you know, let's let's look at positives. Um, ah. <laughs> the, yeah, Be my guest. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I'm on my own there, am I? Uh, so, <laughs> any positives oh, yeah. that you can take out of this? I'm sorry. Part uh, well, any, yeah, the, the, I, you, I'm sorry to be so so doom and gloom. That's kind of the, the mood I'm in this morning. Understandable. Yeah. Um, it's it's wreaking a havoc on our children. It's wreaking a havoc on our mental health, our physical health. Um, it, it, it's like I'm a bookseller. I'm not a medical doctor. I'm not a health expert, but seemingly everyone else in the world is now. And it's just we listen to a bunch of BS, frankly, and it's just, I want to take a more positive. We, we have to get through this, it's, but we have to work together on it. We have to have dialogues, and we need to listen to the science. We don't need to listen to people that just want to shout over one another and be the loudest and the most wrong and ignorant in the room. Mm -hmm. And that seems like our country and the world, that's what we descended into. So we got to take it back. We have to do it locally because voices like yours, Tom, 
voices like UPR, uh, the other great local radio stations that we have in Utah, throughout the nation. We need your voices more than ever. You're important. You're a voice of reason out there. And hopefully, you're telling us the truth. Yeah. We should support that. Well, and to support this, uh, it's a very fast and easy process. You can give us a call at 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495, and uh, take care of your membership, whatever level. We'll be happy with that. Or you can go to our website, upr.org, upr.org. Um, so I understand that uh, the bookstore there, where uh, Ken Center's Rare Books, uh, been a lot of uh, upheaval there, and uh, you did a GoFundMe campaign, which was, I understand, yeah, just- quite successful. Yeah, uh, just over a year ago, it has raised almost $160,000 from some 3,000 people that have made contributions. We've raised, like I said, almost 160 of our $250,000 goal. It's probably been one of the most overwhelming and humbling things I've ever done in my life. Um it's astonishing to me that that, that many people um, do care about the store, and I, I'm just kind of overwhelmed. Uh, you know, I'm not Lawrence Ferlinghetti, Tom, and this isn't City Lights, and we're not in San Francisco. City Lights started a campaign as well before we did, and um, they announced a goal of $300,000, and they raised it in 24 hours. Wow. And a year later, they've raised over a half a million dollars. And, you know, I just read a really interesting article about the Barnes & Noble book chain that is just killing it right now. They've been bought out by the largest corporate chain in uh, England, uh, Waterstones, and they have new management, new ownership, and they're, <laughs> interesting enough, they're going back to letting their regional store managers have authority to buy regional books instead of having stuff shoved on them from national buyers that don't understand local regions. Gee, I think that's something that us independent booksellers like Wellers and King's English and Ken Sanders, that's what we've been doing for 40, 50, in the case of Wellers, 90 years, for crying out loud. Mm. We, we've we always known that. And we do. We, like your radio station, Tom, independent bookstores, we're selling more new books than we ever have, but it's a lot of small dollar volumes, and I'm, I'm grateful for them. But independent bookstores, like independent radio stations, need the public's help. I think what we've got to do as a people, we've got to take back control. You've got to vote with your pocket foot. In pocket book, you've got to put your money into what you personally care about. You need to be invested in local politics. Get on the school boards. Get on the city councils. Let your voice be heard and do it through your pocketbook to the extent you can. Some of my favorite donations, and there's hundreds and hundreds of them, are 5 and $10 donations to my gun GoFundMe from people that I don't know who they are, and they probably don't have a lot of money, but they're given something to something and someone they care about. And that's what your listeners should do as well. 
Let me mention the numbers again, and appreciate that, Ken Sanders. Uh, 800-826-1495. We do uh, need your support. We're uh, moving toward a goal of $60,000 for the uh, drive and uh, making progress, and we'll make further progress with your uh, with your uh, membership right now. Of course, I'm looking at the memberships coming in during this hour, taking it quite personally uh, on, on Access Utah. So thank you. 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495, just a couple of minutes out of your day to become a new member of Utah Public Radio or to renew your membership. Or you can go online to upr.org. Just click on the pledge form on our secure server and take a couple of minutes. upr.org, a lot of thank you gifts there as well. Uh, let me just mention before we go on to some other things, Ken Sanders, uh, just go to GoFundMe, I guess, for, for your fundraiser. Look for Ken yes. Sanders. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, you may. Um, um, and, and, and let me just say one thing more about that. We're, we, we truly, we need to, to, we the people need t- to take back our government and our country. It's out of control. And people, that means different things to different people, obviously. But I think we have the power. We shouldn't be letting city or county or state or even federal governments dictating to us what we do. And one last peeve, you know, everybody likes to talk about these days about independent bookstores, radio stations, fabulous local restaurants, you know, incredible bodegas and shops. But what we're turning downtown Salt Lake City into is an environment where only corporate chains can survive. And our governments give tax incentives and breaks millions, five, ten million dollars to foreign corporations like Amazon and eBay that come into our communities and suck the money back out. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Uh, that's not the argument. Of course, I think it's a bad thing. But all I'm asking, why aren't our cities, our counties, and our state governments doing something for we the people, we the independent booksellers, shop owners, restaurant owners, bodega owners that have homegrown and indigenous and have been doing this for decades? Why is there no fund where our governments help us out. Why do they only help out large foreign corporations? Uh, speaking of which, <clears throat> uh, is your bookstore going to have to move? That's what I'm, I'm hearing. Yeah, is that still oh, the yeah. case? Mm-hmm. We, as I speak, we're surrounded by development. There's 10 stories going up to the north of us with a three-story underground parking garage. Across the street, the mortuary and the tabernacle and that whole Mustard Orange Building is all vacated and awaiting a 31-story development. I just learned earlier last week that behind us on Edison Street, there is a the state's putting in a two-story wine store, and the rest of Edison Street that's empty, an empty parking lot right now, a surface parking lot, will become a nine-story parking garage, and then me and the Green Ant and the rest of the corner of 2nd East and 3rd South, we're next. It's, it's what developers do. Um, we, we've been under this threat for five, six years now, and I hate to be the little boy who cried wolf. Partly it's why we did the GoFundMe, because 
we don't know what's good. I've been given until the end of 2022. Mm. And then we don't know what's next. Yeah. We're, we're trying to work out a, a deal uh, with the great folks at the Leo, um, Leonardo Museum of, of Science and Art, which is literally two blocks to our, our south. Um, that's running into some bureaucracy and red tape, uh, is I guess all I'm going to say about that. Um, so I don't really know our future. It, we may not have one. I, I just don't know yet. I don't own the building. I can't control my own fate, and I'll be 70 years old this year, Tom. I'd like to do this for another 10 years and then drop dead, but who knows? Yeah. Well, uh, let's hope it's uh, later than 80 that you drop dead. You can put a timeline <laughs> on that. But um, uh, Just before we go to a break, Ken Sanders, uh, maybe you know, you've talked about this, but, uh, you know, obviously a lot of people are invested in 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 you and and people like you the book booksellers independent booksellers what is it about a place like Ken Sanders rare books that is it a, a i guess community is part of it right you come and mingle with other folks that's you know kind of a little harder during the pandemic but in better years um yeah. browsing yes. what, what what is it's about it's I've said this before I wear shoes I like shoes this isn't a tirade against shoes but Books are living, breathing culture. Books are about diversity. Books are about ideas. And you know what? You can't smell a book on the Internet, and you can't browse books on the Internet. The best book you're ever going to buy is coming into an independent, new, or used bookstore and buying something that you had no intention of buying and never knew existed. You can't do that online. And... Yes, it's the we have since the cosmic airplane days. I've I've been doing this for almost fifty years now, Tom, and we have brought in thousands of writers, artists, musicians. Uh, Rosalie Sorrells, Katie Lee, Utah Phillips, uh, Edward Abbey, Barry Lopez. Um, just I mean, poet, just endless poets, authors, writers, endless events, and some very. Uh, Unusual events, unique events, you know, during the last Salt Lake City Olympics for the disenfranchised, we held a very strange event called Brigham Young, the Psychedelic Years. Where else are you going to get that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, nowhere else, I would respect, yes. <laughs> tell, tell, tell me about that. I, I missed that. Brigham Young, the Psychedelic uh, well, it, Years. It, it was, I mean... I knew better than to. Uh, I had a lot of bookseller friends that had suffered through Olympics in years past in other cities. I knew I wasn't going to get rich off it. I mean, the same nine guys make all the money each time, and they dribble it out. You know, if you happen to be maybe a restaurant or a bar in in and around the venue, yeah, you're going to clean up. But if you're three blocks away, forget about it. What I didn't anticipate is how during the entire Olympic two-week Olympic period, our business went to nothing. We, we, you know, we lost two-thirds of our business during those two weeks. Wow. So, uh, so there's no get, I mean, like I say, the same nine men make the money off the Olympics. And, and of course, if you are a bar, a restaurant, 
in the downtown corridor, in and around the Olympics, yeah, you'll do really, really well. But otherwise, not. Yeah. So, anyhow, it, what was the question? Uh, the Brigham Young, the psychedelic uh, years. Oh, yeah. it was just an alt. We actually had an official Olympic event that we had real Olympic athletes at, too, weirdly enough. They, they weren't famous ones, but they were bona fide Olympic athletes. We had a fun, real Olympic party, and then we had basically a party for the disenfranchised, you know, the usual suspects, Trent Harris, the filmmaker, Alex Caldiero, the, the sinosopher, Scott Carrier, the, the uh, these days podcaster, uh, and others of my friends just got together and we just did an event that had all manner of music and theater and uh, performance. Well, I'm sorry, I missed that one. Yeah, that's that sounds like a. It's been a, a while time. back. It's been a while, while back. Yes. When are we getting the Olympics again? Maybe we'll we'll revive it. Re- revive it. Yes. <laughs> well, uh, Ken Sanders, uh, before we go to break again here, uh, maybe another appeal to our listeners: why why should uh, why should we support Utah Public Radio? Because the kind of person that listens to public radio, the kind of person that listens to Utah Public Radio, is the type of person that likes to think about things. They'll put up even with listening to my tirades, whether they agree with me or not, they'll be that polite. But it's about independent thinking, it's about thinking for yourselves, and it's about having information to help you make up those precious minds. And it's about diversity and exposing ourselves to the thoughts of others. And we, if we don't have diversity in any kind of ecosystem, and if climate change has not taught us anything, it's all about diversity. It's a rule for both people and living things on the planet. And as we don't pay attention to it, we lose things. And we, a lot of them, I don't know if we're going to get them back diversity of insects and birds and bees and everything else um, and and the people the diversity of the people that's very important and you got to make your, it's obnoxious you think I like you guys begging for my what twice a year thank goodness you only do it twice a year but does anybody actually I, I bet there are there are people aren't there Tom there's weird people that like radio phones huh? yeah, the, the surprising number yes yes yeah well I, I I have to say I don't count myself in that number so before we do go to that that break so I want to put in my annual I'm going to put my money where my mouth is though though my pocketbook isn't as big as my mouth but I'll donate my my usual hundred bucks Tom well thank you thank you appreciate that a lot appreciate that of course I appreciate you well, won't you join your uh, dollars with Ken Sanders? He's just kicked in $100 for uh, Access Utah, for Utah Public Radio, for public radio in general. Um, and won't you join him? Uh, and it, it's a fast and easy process. Here's a couple of ways to join us. 800-826-1495. 800-826-1495. Uh, just a fast and easy process. A couple of minutes on the phone with the volunteer. Or you can go and take care of that uh, just in, in privacy on our website, upr.org, upr.org. A great list of uh, thank you gifts there. And if you're at uh, that level, uh, you can uh, 
take care of that and receive a thank you gift. And I'm thanking you ahead of time here for your support for Utah Public Radio and for Access Utah specifically. Let's go to break now. Much more with uh, Ken Sanders following this break. Thanks for listening to Access Utah, special member drive edition of the program. And we have with us Ken Sanders from Ken Sanders Rare Books in Salt Lake City. And uh, we're looking for your support for Access Utah and for Utah Public Radio. Uh, Here again are the places to go uh, to contact us with your renewed membership or your new membership to Utah Public Radio, 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495, or upr.org, upr.org. I just want to uh, make a mention here, some time shifting. Uh, we do repeat this program in the evening, so as you're hearing uh, phone numbers in the evening, don't uh, call, but use the uh, website at that point, upr.org, upr.org. Uh, Ken Sanders, I don't think I've ever talked to you about, I was reading about Ken Sanders' the early years. Um, <laughs> and and the, this <laughs> jumped out at me. Uh, you're quoted as saying you were a serious book collector by age 17. What, fourteen. What, uh, by fourteen. age fourteen. Fourteen. Wow. What what got you into that? Well, you know, I I read every book in Woodrow Wilson Elementary School, not literally, but every one I had any interest in, and then I devoured them all from the the local South Salt Lake Library where I grew up, and then um, my lifeline as a child uh, was the uh, Scholastic books and the Weekly Reader. They would send out this newsletter. And you could order books, and and I got money by um, hustling soda pop bottles for nickel deposits. You know, and a five and ten cents in my childhood in the fifties was a really big deal. It's a lot of money, and I would save up those nickels and dimes, and once a month we'd get a shipment from the, from the, the book service, and the teeth. You know, not all the kids, of course. I far less than half the class participated in it. And most of the folks, most kids got a book or two books. I was always the last child called because there was always an entire box of books for me. Man, that's where I learned about, you know, Tom Swift, Tom Corbett, Miss Pickerel Goes to Mars, Danny Dunn and the, the anti-gravity paint, Sea View Secret, and my apps, one of my, well, I have a hundred million childhood favorites, uh, the shy stegosaurus of Cricket Creek. Man, that was a good one. I just devoured books as a child. And by the time when I was 14, my grandparents took my little brother and I to Southern California, had a great aunt and uncle out there in Norwalk, and we went to Knott's Berry's farm, and Pop, as we called him, took us to um, deep sea fishing. Uh, I think we went to Disneyland, but I was so big as a child, they didn't believe that I I was um, still a child. And of course, you don't actually have ID to prove that you're a child. So they didn't want to let me in at the child rate into the Disneyland park. That was <laughs> kind of traumatic. But Pop took me to Bertrand Smith's Acres of Books, 240 Long Beach Boulevard, and he sat outside in his, you know, gray metal, gun metal gray Ford sedan, smoking unfiltered camel cigarettes that he would later die a horrible death of at the age of 62. 
he let me roam in this this bookstore for hours, and I bought an Arabian Nights with Maxfield Parrish illustrations. I bought a Alice in Wonderland illustrated by Gwynedd Hudson. Turns out she was a Welsh illustrator that is one of the all-time greatest Alice illustrators ever. I bought a giant folio edition of Poe's The Raven illustrated with each quatrain of the poem illustrated by a giant engraving by Gustave Doré. cost me $17.50. And I was in heaven. I just, I devout, I think as a child, John Arneal, John, uh, the, the Oz artist, uh, John Tenniel, the, the, the uh, Alice in Wonderland artist, I got into good literature through through the illustrations and the pictures. I, I was reading things like Poe and Lewis Carroll and uh, the, the Rubiot of Omar Khayyam and, and hundreds of other things as a child because I became so fascinated with the pictures first. And it led me, good art led me to, to good literature. Mm. How did you uh, make the transition with me, uh, for me, uh, from from that that background of your childhood to uh, Cosmic Airplane, Ken Savage Rare Books, and, and you know selling books in general and and selling rare books. Well, there was the cowboy years, Tom, up mm. in Camas and down in Delta, and then there was the printer years, and and I had uh, my very first job was at a paperback trade store in Sugar House Central Book that's still there to this day, and then um, I ran a, my own mail order business um, when I was still in high school. And then I worked off and on for the the late uh, bookman Sam Weller here in Salt Lake City. As I like to tell the story, Sam hired me five times, and he fired me ten times. <laughs> uh, I know the math doesn't add up, but it's still yeah. a true story. It's still a true story. Uh, and I just, I just always, I just, I, I devoured books. I became, I was a collector, but I became, in essence, a dealer in the grade school days. Just, you know hey, if I can sell, buy this comic book for five cents and sell it for a dime, I can buy two more five-cent comic books. It was just a matter of getting more stuff. And somehow, uh, <laughs> that's turned into... Uh, uh, some of my employees and one of my consultants, uh, I'm not going to mention her name, uh, she, she knows who she is. She argues with me daily that I have this problem and I buy too many books. And she has this concept I should sell more of them. Well, to be the truth be told, Tom, she's absolutely right. I should, but I can't stop myself. I'm like, I'm like a beaver chewing down trees, man. I gotta <laughs> I gotta have more books. <laughs> That's wonderful. If you just joined us, we're talking with Ken Sanders uh, with Ken Sanders Rare Books in Salt Lake City. Uh, raising money for uh, Utah Public Radio and Access Utah, and the place to uh, place to go to uh, to pledge your support to take care of your membership is 800-826-1495 or uh, online upr.org upr.org. Ken Sanders, um, I, I talked to you about this oh several years ago, and a book came out about this. But you, at a certain point, you uh, became a member of the Antiquarian Booksellers Association. And more pertinent for this story, you were on the security committee, and you were you were instrumental in catching uh, a famous uh, book thief, John Charles Gilkey. Um, to tell us a bit about that. Well, it's it's part of a uh, part of my obsessive behavior. I mean, I kind of 
just dive in, collecting books, reading books, whatever I'm doing. I I, I do have a very com, you know obsessive compulsive uh, personality, I suppose, uh, and so did Gilkey. So this man was when I became the security chair back in the 1990s of the ABAA, the Antiquarian Booksellers Association of America. Uh, I became the security chair and. This man from Northern California was ripping people off with stolen credit cards, and uh, he was very knowledgeable about books. It, it, it wouldn't work today, but you know, he'd call people up. We, we used to think, oh, if the credit, you know, if the credit card company gives you an approval on a credit card sale, it's a sale. Well, that's just silly. It's not true at all, and. You know, most people don't realize this, Tom. The only person that is defrauded in a credit card fraud sale is the merchant that takes the card. Credit card companies are very, very good about reimbursing consumers, thank goodness. Uh, But the banks, the credit card companies, everyone else, they, they barely even care about credit card fraud, in my opinion, because... We, the merchant that takes the bad card, are going to get stuck with it. Nobody else. So I just, I, it took me three years of my life, and I figured out an M.O., and he was stealing books, always under 10000 because that would trigger, um, they wouldn't process the card without talking to the cardholder back then on a purchase that large. So he was buying $5,000, $7,500 first editions. So the card and and the people didn't realize the cards had been stolen uh, until after the charge had been processed. Some people never noticed. It's very interesting that way. So he it was doing this for years, um, and over a three-year period, I figured out what he was doing, how he was doing, and I with the San Jose Special Crimes Unit uh, set up a sting. And uh, they staked out a hotel. He he would use a fake address to overnight, you know, a $5,000 book to. And he uh, walked, he had registered at the hotel with, with the stolen credit card. And he just, without going, you know, he didn't go in and present his card because he couldn't. He didn't have it. He would go into the hotel, say, oh, uh, is there any mail for me? Oh, yes, Mr. You know, it's always in the name of the person, the card, not his name. I didn't know his name then. And they would give him his package of his stolen book. He walks out of the hotel. My detective arrests him. Said, I don't know what you're talking about. Some guy in San Francisco gave me 20 bucks to pick a package up for him. So they go on a hunt for the one-armed man through San Francisco, like the old fugitive TV show. And there is no one-armed man, because and Gilkey, I didn't know his name then, John Charles Gilkey, he didn't have a wallet, ID, money, nothing on him, except a crumpled up phone receipt that he hadn't thrown away that proved that he called the bookseller in Massachusetts and ordered the book. So they threw him in jail. It, too long a story to tell. There's a whole, whole bloody book about it. To Allison Bartlett wrote it called The Man who loved books too much. When I autograph copies, I autograph them, the man who loved to steal books too much. And uh, long story short, uh, we did catch him. Uh, eventually, he uh, was sentenced to three years in San Quentin. Um, 
the this type of book crime isn't really considered book crime by most uh, police departments, and so he he was in and out of he he went back to prison. I don't know five or ten times over the next ten years. I have not heard from him in two or three years, and I can I I'm certain if he's alive and not imprisoned, not incarcerated, that he's stealing books. I've heard no reports. So hopefully he's incarcerated for a good good long period this time. Mm-hmm. I can only hope. Yeah, I, I recall one of the things that I remember most from the interview we did uh, with the author of the book you mentioned, The Man Who Loved Books Too Much, we had you on as well. Um, and the, the it's been a while, ten it's, years it's, ago. Yeah, it's been a while. Um, the the uh, the author was uh, talking about how she tried to get in 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 the head of John Charles Gilkey, right, and was trying to understand why he did it. And I remember you uh, kind of pushed back. You said, "Hey, let's 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 not have too much sympathy here. He's he's a thief. <laughs> what At he the is, end of the right? day, yeah. he's a book thief. Yeah, and he's he has stolen t- probably hundreds of thousands of dollars. No, I I, I do believe the author." It was too sympathetic to his side, and I think she involved herself too personally in the story. The New York Times actually did review the book. Um, they, 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 their reviewer dismissed my detective work as merely typing, and um, suggested that uh, both Mister Gilkey and myself were thematically limited. Hmm. That's what the New York Times had to say. Yeah. I wrote a very funny letter to them, but of course they never published it. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. That we'd we'd like to read that at some point. Um, let's uh, let's take another break, uh, Ken Sanders. Um, and before yeah, you sound we... like you're going to talk about Ed Abbey. You got uh, some yes, guests yes, coming on, up in the yeah. In, we, we've in the had third, David uh, here two or three times over the years. He years ago he did a kind of Abbey Stegner book. And he, now he's he did. done a Thoreau one and um, Roosevelt. And, yeah. And he's uh, he's all over the map. I don't always agree with him, but that's the beauty of this. This is the beauty of diversity. He's a really fine writer, and he has a great mind, and he's a fun person to argue with. Well, let's get to uh, we'll get to some of those uh, brief clips in the third segment here after this break. As we go to break uh, again, Ken Sanders, what uh, your appeal again to our listeners? Why should we support public radio? Because you're going to talk about things that one that we already know about and should care about, but also you're going to expose us. D- David Gessner is a great example. He is not. I mean. I don't mean anything disparaging, David, but he's not Stephen King. He's not Edward Abbey. He's not a famous, famous writer. But there are a lot of David Gessners out there that are really, really fine writers, and they have very successful careers doing really interesting books. And without places like you, without places like Access Utah and Utah Public Radio, most of us are never going to hear about them. There's only so many people are going to show up in my shop for a reading. You having him on and letting him read exposes a more infinitely large audience and universe. And we need to know about all of these different kinds of people. There's so many. And we need to trust you to pick 
in my world, because I'm talking about literature here, but it's, but it's a metaphor for everything. Interesting. We have to trust you to pick people that you're not going to waste our time with losers. Okay, Tom? You're going to give us, really, whether it's a musician, a painter, a literary author, a poet, whatever type of creativity or science or art that it is, you're going to pick the best of the lesser known. That's why we have to support you. That's why we call up and give money. Do, you can do it in other ways of calling, right? There's all these, these, these web things, and I don't know. Can you, can you pledge on social media? Uh, well, you can pledge on our app, for sure, Utah Public Radio oh, an app. app. Yes, an app. yes. Boy, I don't do those. You, you, <laughs> you can pledge on the app, and maybe the best way at this point is to go to our website, upr.org, upr.org. Uh, Ken Sanders has kicked in $100. Won't you join him in support of Utah Public Radio today? UPR.org, UPR.org, and a big thank you. By the way, there are thank you gifts there. You can see all the thank you gifts on our website and select one of those if you're at that dollar level. UPR.org. We'll have more following this. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're uh, pleased to be joined by Ken Sanders from Ken Sanders Her Books in Salt Lake City for the hour uh, today. Um, and we have a, a couple of very short clips I want to play. But before we get into that in this last segment here, Ken Sanders, um, I noticed that yeah. you, were, you were featured in a recent uh, film. Um, about, uh, it was about Mark Hoffman. Um, oh, yeah. I... Um... Uh, Murder Among the Mormons is what it's called. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. My co- you know, I never, I have yet to experience COVID, but I feel like it, it's eaten my brain and my memory, uh, even without ever even having it. Maybe it's just a contact high or something. Yeah, yeah it could be. Could I, be I don't know. Yeah, yeah, I can relate. Uh, I can't remember yeah. anything. Yeah, uh, uh, um, Tyler and, uh, oh, see, there goes the brain again. <laughs> The two local boys that produced it for for uh, BBC and it was on Netflix. I I actually haven't seen it. Right? Yeah, I was watching a I was watching a, a clip. You know, part of you on on there being interviewed. Uh, so you uh, you you met Mark Hoffman. I think he tried to sell you some things back in the seventies at the Cosmic Airplane, my old uh, hippie head shop, the my first antiquarian bookstore when I first issued my very first catalog of Mormon books and Western Americana, and I sold my very first 1830 Book of Mormon for $5,000 worth hundred grand today. Uh, and yeah, and some punk kid came in trying to sell me this, that, and the other document things. And yeah, look, Tom, hindsight is so easy, but we did not get along. Didn't like each other. Um, I wouldn't buy anything from him. He left after I sold Cosmic out in the early 80s, was forced out, actually. Um, my partner went on to buy enormous sums of Brigham Young, Jim Bridger, all manner of forgeries, and in part the demise of the Cosmic Airplane in the late 80s after I was gone could be attributed to you know, over $100,000 worth of Hoffman forgeries that, that they sold as real and didn't have the wherewithal or whatever. I was gone. I don't know the inside story of it anymore. Um, they didn't make it good. 
Uh, so there's a lot of Mark Hoffman victims. Um, I think in my case, I mean, though uh, on my father's side, I come from a long line of Mormons, including a, a great-great-grandfather, two, three greats, I forget, that translated the Book of Mormon into Maori. Wow. And, his, and a great-great-great-aunt, Ellen Sanders Kemble, who was one of the first three pioneer women into the valley. With the, She was Heber C. Kemble's favorite polygamist wife. I'm not a Mormon. I've never pretended to be one. They, they never got me, meaning that they never <laughs> baptized me as a child. Uh, and I still, I can't swim to this day, Tom, and I blame it on the Mormons. <laughs> That's too long a story to yep. tell. <laughs> Very good. Very good. Um, <laughs> so uh, you pointed out, just briefly here, you pointed out in this clip that uh, Mark Hoffman was not just peddling uh, Mormon, so-called Mormon oh, no, documents. No. It was, it was a broader range than that, yeah. I'm, I, I apologize for interrupting you. Oh, no, that, that was just the, the thing. is is broader than just Mormon documents, right? No, it, and that's the thing. His non-Mormon, his his Davy, his you know Davy Crockett's, his Jim Bridgers, his Emily Dickinson's, the, you know the, the Oath of a Freeman. Those are well known and famous, but there's a lot of less famous ones. You know, there. The, well, I don't know. Call of the Wild was pretty famous. His uh, Melville Moby Dick. A lot of these forgeries are still out there, and the forgeries. Hoffman may not be making them. He's not physically capable of doing it anymore. He may not be making them anymore, but the forgeries are still out there claiming new victims. And despite how good uh, I've heard the the uh, murder among the Mormons story is, the real truth, the whole truth about the Hoffman affair is never going to be told and I'm not about to tell it to you today. There's too many people still living. I'll just say that Mark Hoffman is not the only perpetrator of the Hoffman forgeries, and there are other people that should have gone to jail with him. Hmm. Well, interesting, yeah. Well, that story will come out at some point, I suppose. Um, let's. I do, do want to talk about Edward Abbey. That some people may not know that you were friends with, with that Ed Abbey. Let's hear, to get into this, let's hear the trailer from the film... Uh, Wrenched. This is by M.L. Lincoln, and we had the filmmakers, several others, including you, on an, on this program in 2014, talking about this uh, film when it was premiering. Uh, so let's just, it's about two and a half minutes, let's just hear the trailer. Sure. I found myself a displaced person shortly after birth, and I've been looking half my life for a place to take my stand. There was just something about Ed Abbey that really spoke to us. I regard the wilderness as my home, and when it's being invaded by clear cutters and strip miners, I feel not only the right, but the duty to defend it by any means I can. Ed and I had found this D3 pet in the construction of that stinking highway down to the Colorado. So we turned the damn thing on and sent it off the cliff. A demonstration of civil disobedience played out in Salt Lake this evening. I started reading Edward Abbey when I was 18. I was old enough to understand it, but not quite old enough to realize that it wasn't a manual. Would you do it again? Yes. Yes. 
everything in the biotic community was gone. I saw that I wasn't the one who was nuts. It was the very beginning of an environmental movement, but it belonged to a certain caste of people that the other people saw as threatening. Earth first! People were attracted to Earth first because it really said, let's save the United States. They're not environmentalists, they're terrorists. Defending the natural world, of course, you're going to bring a lot of anger and hostility towards you because there's so much money being made from destroying this planet. These are people out there that had gone through everything that they had been taught to change things in our world if you see an injustice, and it didn't work. What are we willing to do for a livable future? This is a global issue, and it's about greed and materialism, and we are all involved in guilty. Human society is like a stew. If you don't keep it stirred up, you get a lot of scum on top. Agitate. So that's the trailer from the film Wrenched. Um, so, Ken Sanders, you uh, understand you knew Ed Abbey. Uh, tell us about the, the man you knew in brief. Well, I, I met Ed in the Cosmic Airplane years. Monkey Wrench Gang was published uh, about 1970. In, it was published in 1975, and it wasn't too long after that that, that I met Ed. He just wandered in the store, and uh, we recognized him, and I took him in the back room and asked him to sign some books for us. And then I proceeded to um, lecture him on the bad habits that Hayduke and company had of uh, littering beer cans around the highways. And despite that beginning, we went on to become pretty good friends until his death in 89. Throughout the 80s, we did a whole series of river trips uh, down the green in the Colorado and Cataract Canyon and uh, had a lot of fun with those. Uh, that. that it's coming to mind. There's a recent issue of The New Yorker that has a fairly good, lengthy piece on Glen Canyon, how it's coming back. And, uh, you know, it, it, uh, it's, it, I always shudder when I read these articles written by these hardcore East Coasters that really know nothing about us. But this woman actually did a pretty good job. But there's one. She talked to some bicycle guy there in Moab, and he uh, he tells a story about Ed Avey's uh, boat, and that's a bunch of BS. Ed and I did those river trips. I was on the very last trip we did together, and it was in November, and um, Ed had this piece of orange bathtub piece of crap they called a boat called a sport yak it's just this kind of injected plastic mold it's like a swimming pool toy and uh, we would rendezvous at spanish bottom and then i'd row my big raft and edit let his float behind me but every time i was trying to take a oar and set up for a rapid i'd keep thunking on the boat and i kept cussing ed and cussing the boat out Finally, Ed decided that uh, he could let it go down the river by itself. Through the, we were in mile-long rapids at the time, and so I just I'm mile-long rapids, especially it's low water. It's November. 
you've, you'd screw up, but you're going to get thrown out of the boat and probably freeze and die because it's really, really cold. And so I wasn't paying any attention until I hear Ed mumbling, I can't see my raft, Ken, where's my boat? <laughs> and so I finally eddy out near the bottom of the rapids, and we waited, we waited, and we waited. The boat never came. <laughs> we, uh, we lost Ed Abbey's boat. Ed uh, had the, the, pat, the oars were in my boat. And all his gear, to this day, I've got his life jacket, his, his rocket box. He took his ammo can with him. Uh, I didn't, I didn't have it. He, he said, oh, if anybody finds the boat, they can have it, and I'll give them the oars. Well, in this New Yorker story, this guy's made up this story of him having Ed Abbey's boat down there at his shop in Moab. Well, it's a bunch of baloney. I was there. I know. It ain't, it ain't Ed's boat, pal. Hmm. But the New Yorker fell for it. Yeah, yep. Um, it happens from time to time, doesn't it? I just yeah. have a couple of minutes left. I just want to mention in passing, uh, I had a fire in Moab, and uh, and uh, we lost a, a priceless archive, a Ken Slight's archive out there to that fire. It's a, it's a huge loss. Yeah, they mentioned that in the New Yorker article as, as well. Yeah, I mean, Ken's 93, Jane's in her 80s, and they don't really have anything. Yeah, and his, his Quonset hut burned up with his lifelong of all his early Wonderland expeditions, what he called himself when he was plying people through Glen Canyon before the dam in the 50s, early 60s. It's just horrible, horrible loss. Um We've tried to raise some money for him privately. They didn't really want anything like a GoFundMe. They wouldn't wouldn't do that. But um, yeah, it's it's devastating. And uh, Ken Ken Slide, I've I've known long. Well, I've known him much longer because he's still alive than Ed Abbey, and I've been very very close to them. I have so many memories of good times and serious times and good work done at Pack Creek Ranch, all courtesy of Ken and. Jane Slide, so yeah, they. We should create a new form of national park or national monument uh, status for people, and I think uh, Ken Slide uh, is other worthy nominees, but Ken certainly should be in the first class, inducted into a one-person uh, human national monument, if you will. Yeah, yeah, very true. Well, we won't have time to play the clip from uh, David Gessner. Just mentioned that uh, some great events have, have happened. I'm sure it will happen in the future in the Ken Sanders Rare Books. And he had one uh, earlier this year with uh, David Gessner talking about his book about Henry David Thoreau and, uh, and refer people to that interview that I had with David Gessner.